From the very depths of the sea itself, Walt Disney has created the mightiest motion picture of them all. 20,000 leagues under the sea. Beneath the surface of the sea lies a world of infinite mystery, of unearthly beauty and uncounted treasure, a world of uncharted depths and adventure. I want you to see the extent of these secrets for which they've haunted me. The power which is still mine. Enough energy to lift mankind from the depths of hell into heaven or destroy it. 20,000 leagues under the sea. Starring Kirk Douglas, James Mason, Paul Lucas, Peter Laurie. Don't miss Walt Disney's Miracle of Entertainment. 20,000 leagues under the sea. The mightiest motion picture of them all. Ahoy, mateys, and welcome to Treks in Sci-Fi number 428. My name is Chris Clemente, and uh, I'm joined by uh, somebody... Uh, well, I'm joined by a landlubber. <laughs> Pretty sure. Oh, yeah, well, I mean, if I had a boat, I would be on it, I guess. <laughs> That's Al, that deep, the dulcet, <laughs> velvety tones. Yeah, I'm finally going through puberty. They dropped, so my voice is a little lower. <laughs> Well, that's that's good. I I hope I hope that happens to me when I get there. <laughs> oh, just keep the faith, brother. <laughs> so, what are we talking about today? Uh, we're talking about uh, Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, um, not the book, but the movie. Um, Walt Disney's Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. Let's not forget that part. Yeah, of it. I can't forget that. No, that's very important. Uh, let's see. This movie came out in December of nineteen fifty-four, so it's almost sixty years old. Wow, almost as old as Rick Moyer. Almost, yeah, but, but not quite. <laughs> uh, let's see. It was directed by Richard Fleischer. He also did Fantastic Voyage, Doctor Doolittle, Tora Tora Tora, Soylent Green, <laughs> and Conan the Destroyer. Oh, that was a Conan is a. Oh, never mind. It's one of my movies, boy. Let me tell you, Conan the Destroyer, not as good as Conan the Barbarian, but you know it's still good. It's still got Arnold in it, but. With a sword. One. And a sword, but the first one's way better. Oh, yeah. First one's bloody and gross. Mm-hmm. One of my favorites. And who's in this? Let's see. We got Kirk Douglas as Ned Land. Uh, Kirk's a pimp in this movie. He's awesome. Yes, he is. And I find it kind of odd that uh, Kirk Douglas, who plays a-, a sailor in this movie, his last name is Land. Yeah, I always- <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> uh, James Mason as Captain Nemo. Paul Lucas as Professor Aranex, and Peter Laurie as Conceal, and Ted DeCorgia as Captain Farragut. He's in the beginning of the movie. Um, let's see, uh, quickly, won uh, two Academy Awards for Best Special Effects and Best Art Direction. Clearly, that's not even in question. This parts of the movie, they're just awesome. Oh, absolutely. So, uh, well, let's dive into the story. Let's see what this sucker's about. Yeah, well, it's kind of a complicated story, so... Why don't you go grab a snack and maybe uh, <laughs> a nice cold <laughs> beverage and relax while I regale you with this. In the year 1868, rumors of a sea monster attacking ships in the Pacific Ocean have created all kinds of panic among sailors. And, of course, this disrupts the shipping lanes. 
Professor Pierre Aranex and his assistant Conceal, played by Peter Lorre, are on their way to Saigon, but they're forced to cancel the voyage because shipping companies fear that the monster, quote-unquote, is going to get them. The point is, this thing is a ship killer, and it's a miracle old Billy's alive today. Tell him about his teeth, Billy. As big as a mainsail, I swear. And its breath, ooh, its breath was like a furnace. Oh, you got a pretty strong breath yourself, measy talking friend. <laughs> you mind answering a few questions? I'm a harpooner by trade. Monsters interest me. All kinds. Keep away from him, you noisy sea lawyer. Just want to smell his breath? I can already smell yours. Boil <laughs> down for his oils, lads. There'll be free grog for all hands. <laughs> swallow it on top of his tall young. Come on, Casey. This is no place for a clergyman's son. Now, the U.S. government invites Aranax onto an expedition to either prove or disprove the monster's existence. One of their fellow crew is the cocky master harpooner Ned Land, played, I might say, perfectly by Kirk Douglas. Yes. Now, after months and months of fruitless searching, the monster is finally spotted one night. So the ship fires at it with its cannons, and it immediately charges them, just right head first, right into them. Ned and Aranex are thrown overboard, and Conceal goes in after Aranex, because, you know, he's his assistant. And he's got to do that. It's in the contract. The warship, burning and helpless, drifts silently, and no one on board answers when the overboard passengers cry for help. Kind of reminds me a little bit of Titanic. <laughs> Don't let him die! There's room on that boat! Trust me, there was room on that door. I saw it. Now, the three drift in the ocean, and eventually they find a strange-looking metal vessel, and they realize that this is the monster, and it's actually a man-made submerging boat. Hmm. And it seems to be kind of deserted inside. So, Aranax wanders down into the salon, where he finds a massive viewing window and sees an underwater funeral taking place, presumably for a man on the submerging, quote-unquote, boat, who was killed by the expeditionary ship's guns. When the submarine crew returns to their ship, they capture the three castaways. The captain introduces himself as Nemo, master of the Nautilus. He returns Ned and Conceal to the deck, while Aranex, whom he recognizes for his work and research, is allowed to stay. He tempts Aranax to remain with him, but Aranax prefers to share his company's or his companion's fate. You are from the warship that attacked me, are you not? Yes. We were under the impression that this was a monster, not a craft of human invention. This is Ned Land, Master Harpooner, my apprentice, Conseil, and I am Pierre Aranax of the Paris National Museum. Professor Aranax, I've heard of you and studied your writings. It is fortunate that your background differs slightly from that of your companions in crime. You met remain. Take the others on deck. Hey, what do you want to do with us on deck? I did not invite you here. You came as an enemy to destroy me. But that is not true. They've done no harm. Look, don't blame us because the warship shelled you. I demand a fair trial. You've had your trial. The sea brought you. The sea shall have you back. Oh, right, mind your shoving easy, mate. Nemo submerges the Nautilus with the three stowaways on the deck. But when he sees that all three are still alive, he orders them to be brought back into the submarine, saying, I've found what I've wanted to know. 
In other words, he found out that Aranax was sincerely willing to die with his companions rather than abandon them. Now, after dinner that night, Nemo takes them all on an underwater expedition to gather supplies, but Ned, being Ned, tries to salvage a, tr a sunken treasure chest from a wreck, almost getting attacked <laughs> by a nasty-looking shark. And I swear this thing was probably about 2,500 feet long. It was huge. <laughs> it was a big one. Now, later on, Nemo takes Aranax to the penal colony island of Rorapenthe. Hmm. That sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Yeah, that's uh, that's weird, isn't it? It sure hmm. is. Nemo reveals that he was once a prisoner there himself, as were many of the crew of the Nautilus. After traveling 10,000 leagues under the sea, I still had not solved the mystery of Captain Nemo. But when one day he asked me to go ashore with him, I felt at long last I was to have my answer. The prison camp of Rora Pante, the white man's grave. But I thought it had been abolished. Nothing is abolished that turns a prophet to that hated nation. You'll see better what I mean through this. What is in those sacks they are carrying? Nitrates and phosphate for ammunition. The seeds of war. They're loading a full cargo of death. And when that ship takes it home, the world will die a little more. I was once one of those pitiful wretches you see down there. Look at it again, Professor. I don't want you to forget what you've seen here today. I've seen enough. It's burned everlastingly in my memory. The prisoners there are loading a munitions ship. I wonder what they're going to do with that. It embarks at sunset, whereupon the Nautilus rams it, destroying its munitions cargo and killing the entire crew. When confronted by Aranax, an anguished Nemo says that his actions have just saved thousands from death in war. He also discloses that his hated nation had tortured his wife and his son to death in an attempt to force him to reveal the secrets of his work. Meanwhile, Ned discovers the coordinates of Nemo's secret island base, Volcania. Hmm. That's another vaguely familiar name, isn't it? I wonder if there's any Volcanians. Could be, with pointy ears and green blood and just really logical. <laughs> and, of course, Ned decides to release some messages in a bottle... Sending out an SOS. That's right. He's been uh, reading too many Nicholas Sparks books, hoping that someday somebody will find them and free him from captivity. Off the coast of New Guinea, the Nautilus gets stranded on a reef. Ned is surprised when Nemo freely allows him to go ashore with Conceal to collect some specimens. I'm not going <laughs> to say what kind of specimens, but he's going to collect specimens. But, of course, Ned goes off alone inland to explore avenues of of escape. While he's kneeling at a pool to drink some water, he sees a number of human skulls on stakes. At this point, I think I'd be going, bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, unbeknownst to him, he has been spotted by a cannibal in a tree. And not a fine young cannibal either. <laughs> Realizing his danger, Ned runs for his life and rejoins Conceal. Conceal. That's a funny name. As they are chased back to the Nautilus. Despite remaining aground, 
Nemo is unconcerned, and the cannibals are repelled by the ship by giant electric charges. That's so cool. That was probably one of the coolest parts. I just love it. <laughs> Those guys hopping around. <laughs> That's right, hopping around, doing the happy dance. <laughs> Captain Nemo is, of course, furious at Ned for not following his orders and confines him to the submarine's brig as punishment. A warship approaches, of course, firing and striking the submarine just as it breaks free of the reef. It descends into the depths where it attracts the attentions of, drumroll please, a giant squid. We'll be fighting at close quarters with the most tenacious of all sea beasts. Stay clear of the tentacles. They'll seize anything within reach and hang on to the death. The only vital spot is directly between the eyes. Already beaten surfacing, sir. Stand by. The electric charge fails to repel the monster, so Nemo and his men are forced to surface in order to battle the nasty little critter, and Nemo is caught in one of the squid's tentacles. Ned, having escaped from captivity in the struggle, and in spite of his sincere hatred for the captain, jumps to Nemo's rescue and saves this captor's life. How odd can that be? As a result, Nemo has a change of heart. He claims now to want to make peace with the outer world by sharing his secrets of the sea. However, of course, this is going to be very short-lived. As the Nautilus nears Vulcania, Nemo finds the island surrounded by warships, whose marines are converging on his hideout. As Nemo goes ashore, Ned attempts to identify himself as the author of the bottled messages, but guess what? These guys ain't having any of that. They're shooting at him, even though he took his shirt off. Yeah, he took a shirt off and he's waving it. I can't understand why they would shoot at him. Aranax realizes this and becomes extremely furious, recognizing that Nemo will destroy all the evidence of all his discoveries. And sure enough, Nemo plants a huge bomb in his hideout, but is mortally wounded from a bullet to the back while returning to the Nautilus. After haphazardly navigating the submarine away from Vulcania and smacking into a few walls, completely, completely cheesing off his insurance agent, Nemo announces that he will be taking the Nautilus down for the last time. Loyal to Nemo to the very end, his entire crew declare that they will accompany their captain in death. We understand, sir, and we're with you. Wait a minute, I don't understand. What's that got to do with us? I'm dying, and the Nautilus is dying with me. Professor. Yes. In a matter of minutes, an explosion, such as the world has never known, will destroy my island and all its works forever. That is why I have brought the Nautilus here to its last deep resting place. Here, at least, we will die in peace. Let every man go to his quarters and remain there. Why do you take us down with you? Lock them in their quarters. Aye, sir. Take them out. I don't want to die. Don't let them do it, Professor. I want to Captain. Captain, you cannot do this. There is more at stake here than just our lives. Yours was a dream of the future come true. I beg you to reconsider. Greater than mine makes that impossible. But there is hope for the future. When the world is ready for a new and better life, all this will someday come to pass. 
in God's good time. Aranax, Conceal, and Ned are taken forcibly to their cabins. The Nautilus's crew also retreats to their own cabins at Nemo's instructions. Now, Ned being Ned, fights his captor, breaks loose, overcomes the first mate, who has tried to stop him, escapes to the now-deserted bridge, and manages to surface the Nautilus, hitting a reef in the process and causing the ship to begin flooding rapidly. In his final moments, Nemo staggers to the viewing window, collapses, and looks at his beloved ocean one last time as he gives up the spirit. With his eyes open, of course. Mm-hmm. Now, Aaron X tries to go back and retrieve his journal, which contains a detailed account of the voyage, but the urgency of their escape obliges Ned to pop him in the, right in the face, just knock him out, and drag him to the uh, boat. The companions witness Volcania destroyed in a massive explosion, and Aranex's diary of the voyage is also lost forever, and Ned apologizes for having hit him, and they all live happily ever after. And then we hear Nemo's final words echo like something from an angel. There is hope for the future, and when the world is ready for a new and better life, all this will someday come to pass. The end. <laughs> yeah, that's. <clears throat> I I hadn't watched it in a little while. Uh, when I rewatched it, and it really is a great movie. Yeah, I agree. When was the uh, first time you saw this movie? We, actually, you know, the first time I saw this movie was probably uh, I, I want to say sometime in the seventies uh, when it, I think it was on uh, the Walt Disney Presents uh, television show. Uh, that was the first time I had seen it. And uh, I hadn't seen it again for a couple of decades. And then I watched it probably uh, the last time I watched it was probably about 10 years ago before, you know, getting ready for this podcast. And and uh, I got to tell (laughs) you, even though I love this movie and I think this is this is actually for me a classic and timeless movie. The uh, time between, you know, the first time and then the second time I had seen it, you know, a lot of movies came out. The technology in science fiction had uh had increased and gotten much better. And uh, it, it just didn't, uh, you know, looking at it with, with uh, you know, young adult eyes, it was like, wow, I can't believe this was good. But, uh, you know, I was being naive back then. <laughs> uh, rewatching it again, you know, I'm looking at it with different eyes. And, and it really does. When you think about it, it, it stands up for uh, for the, for the year that, I mean, it was made in 1954, you know. Yeah. And for that time, it was an awesome movie. It might seem a little corny now, but in 1954, this movie rocked. Yeah. And I don't think it's corny. I mean, I don't think it's corny at all. Oh, not anymore. I mean, when I watch it now, I agree with you. I I don't feel that way. I mean, I see some some dated dialogue, but, you know, nothing worse than you're going to see on NBC. (laughs) Yeah, but, you know, I don't know. I've never – I've always liked older movies. Um, The first time I saw this, my mother – when we got a, a VHS, one of those top loading, oh, I you know, those. torpedo launcher VHS, you know, <laughs> or the thing comes, you know, lights dim. You know. So, you know, when we would go to the the video rental store, like she kind of just said, "This is what we can get." And it was usually like the Disney 
you know, all the like live action Disney movies and my sister would inevitably get Pollyanna or something like that. <laughs> so, I mean, I mean, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, I got that one and Treasure Island and things like that. But I remember getting this uh, from the VHS store and I, I loved it. I loved it as a kid. I was probably, I'd say I was like nine, maybe eight mm-hmm. or nine. And I think right around the same time where I had gone on the uh, 20,000 Leagues ride at Disney World. Oh, yeah. And you go on a little Nautilus and you kind of look under the fish and stuff. And there's like a, there was like a shipwreck and stuff to look at. It was pretty. It was a cool ride. And um, I loved all those old um, live action Disney movies when I was a kid. And I went through them all. Um, and then I, I didn't watch it again until yesterday. <laughs> but <laughs> so I was, how did it change? I mean, did it change at all for you between the first time you watched it and then uh, this recent time? Well, when I was a kid, it was just like a cool, it was just, I really, like when you're a kid, everything's real. You right. know, you're like, oh wow, you know. I mean, and I wasn't really thinking like, how did they do this and how they do that? You're just watching the movie. So when I watched it yesterday at 38 now, I'm like, oh well, this is, this is a really cool movie. And I, and I hadn't looked at the behind the scenes stuff at all. And I was kind of like trying to figure out how some of the stuff was done. But I think that, um, I, it held up fine to me. I, I, I was, I was not bored by it. I was uh, watched it. I uh, was entranced by it. I, I I got a kick out of it. I I I've watched some older movies, you know, that I liked when I was younger, and they don't hold up at all. You know, you know, maybe they're comedies or whatever. But this this I think it's not obviously not the same feeling I had when I was a little kid. But it's it's still a great movie. It's a great movie. I think that if something is good, it's gonna be good no matter what. Even if you say, "Well, gee, the special effects are not CGI." Well, who cares? <laughs> you know, I mean, maybe that's how. Like, you know, like maybe it's good that I hadn't watched it since I was very young, because I know, like, like kids my son's age, who's fifteen, he watches like Aliens, right? And while I was watching Aliens with him, and he goes, "You know, Dad, I I bet these graphics were very good when you were a kid, but they're just <laughs> not so good now." And I'm like thinking. It's a good movie. It's a great movie. What do you shut up? So maybe it's like I'm not like going. This isn't as good as what can be made now. As a matter of fact, I, I'll go on. I, I've, I'm I like CGI as much as anybody, but I still like looking at models and things better. I always will. Well, I think I think it gives more of a dimension to to the is as good as 3D. I mean, uh, as uh, CGI can be, it's still unless it's you know unless they dump millions and millions of dollars into the shot. It still cannot look tactile. It still cannot look like it's a real thing. Right. I mean, they're getting better. And I mean, there's sometimes I watch movies and I'm like, and you find out later that something was an effect. You're like, oh, I didn't even think that that was an effect. And that's when it works. But when it works is when it's not being obtrusive, when it's not giant robots and things like that, that you just know aren't there. But maybe when it's like, Something as simple as when they got rid of, like, say, uh, Lieutenant Dan's legs in Forrest Gump or something. Yeah. You're like, okay, well, that's a practice, that's a great use for it. Um, but to me, I, I just don't know. Even like in, in Star Wars, when you, when I, when, and it's really apparent in something like Star Wars, when they did the special edition where you see, like, some movie full of model shots, and then all of a sudden you have, like, a CGI, like, Ronto, and, like, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, well, that doesn't belong in this movie. You know what I mean? It's like, and I, I'm sure that this is the kind of movie. I think I know they've had other versions of Twenty Thousand Leagues come out um, since then, mm-hmm. and I haven't seen any of them. Um, but I imagine that eventually there's going to be another, maybe major production of this story sometime down the line. I don't know, and maybe it'll be good, maybe it won't. And I'm sure you know it'll be, you know, super duper special effects and everything. But I don't know. 
it, uh, great special effects don't mean anything if like you if the characters aren't interesting and you know i mean that's just that's just like transformers to me proves that you know? <laughs> i don't care about any of those characters and you know you didn't care about shy not really i mean to be you know it's like but in this movie you know you care about captain nemo oh, yeah. and you care about ned you know these are interesting characters you know and they they have nice moments throughout the movie and it, it kind of that's what kind of hooks you into a movie is a story and characters and anything that happens is like you know if you if you have a movie with good story good characters then you can have cr- crappy special effects mm-hmm. i mean babylon 5 one of my favorite shows when you watch it now you look at the the the, the, the early cgi and you're like oof Yikes. <laughs> like you know? Last of the Star, or the Last Starfighter right, type exactly. of stuff, yeah. But when I watch The Last Starfighter, I, I, I love that movie because, so I. you know, the characters are great. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a great family movie. And so if the effects are a little cheesy, you go, well, geez, you know, 1984. Right? I mean, True. so I always go that way first. I mean, I can forgive bad special effects or, or special effects that are dated. I'll watch Babylon Five, even though the effects are I would you wouldn't ex, you wouldn't accept those on a new production, but because I was so hooked into the characters, it's like yeah, oh well. You know? <laughs> I mean, you just gotta just get into it one way or the other. So I mean, I, I don't judge a movie by effects, but I do judge it by the actors' story and also the artistic in, intentions, which this movie has so much, so oh, much yeah. of it. I mean, well, they had great source material to begin with, and. Uh... You know, they brought some great actors in. Um, the The relationship between uh, Kirk Douglas and Peter Lorre's characters, I loved that. I mean, it was – you could see them after after the events of this movie. You could see them being pals, you know, buddying around and just having a good time. Yeah. I think that they did – and I mean, the movie was two hours – what, two hours and 15 minutes long. So it's a fairly decent, decent length movie. But – they they did so much with such a short span of time. You actually believe that they were friends. Yeah, absolutely. And and that actually kind of mirrored the, like their relationship on the set. Apparently, they got on really well, and um, they were very friendly. You know that thing where Kirk Douglas or uh, where Ned is always um, rubbing his head. You know, he's yeah. Always, he kind of came up with that. Kirk Douglas kind of came up with that, where he would just rub his head, and then they kind of decided to put it in the movie as like an affectation between the two of them. I love the scene where like he he punches him. Oh yeah, and, he, and he's like, you know, hey, listen, you know, you deserve this for spying on me. And he's like, Ned, I thought we were friends. He goes, We are friends. You know, <laughs> he just yeah. had to. We had he had to get that out of the way. He had to punch him and sock him in the in the jaw, you know, just to get that out of the badness out of the way, so they could be uh, be friends. That's and it right. was it was a pretty cool little relationship that they had in the movie. Mm-hmm. And I love Peter Lorre ever since. Oh, I do too. Uh, Casablanca. Yeah. You know, he's a, he's such a cool, and he's such a weird, he's a, he's a, a kind of has an odd look in this movie with his old, uh, crew cut and, you know, with his, he's kind of chunky, you know, it's like, it's like a weird look for him. You know? Yeah, it <laughs> so, is. But yeah, he's, he's cool in it. And I mean, all the actors were really, um, were really great. Uh, uh, James Mason is. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's a, Cool. He's, if, he, if you think of Sea Captain, you know, there should be a picture of him with that turtleneck and the beard and like the dictionary, you know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> and, no uh, kidding. You know, he's got the beard, he's got the outfit. The he's, swagger. I mean, he just has everything. You know, you can almost see him on the on the bridge of a starship. Oh, yeah. He'd be a great, um, great Star Trek villain. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, he could have been Khan. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I I, I like uh, Ricardo as Khan, but I digress. What did you think about the um, the treasure chest scene? I love that. I thought that was now. I I, I realize that that probably wasn't Kirk Douglas and Peter Laurie underwater, but um, the stunt the stunt guys did a good job of making you believe that they were. Yeah, they were them. I thought that was so funny. They intercut with um, scenes with Peter Laurie and Kirk Douglas back in the uh, studio with right. the with rear projection, so that it looked like they were underwater. So when you saw their faces in some of the scenes, you know, when he's like opening the chest, he's like, "Hey," um, but yeah, there was it, there was doubles for everybody underwater. Um, the way they did the underwater stuff was crazy. Oh, I know. You know, they actually built those um, those suits. They built them to, to look like, um, you know, Captain Nemo or, or, sorry, suits from the Nautilus, but they were functional. And they had only been used once, I think, total, and they, nobody really knew if they were going to work, and they did work. Um, but they could only film, they filmed it, uh, down in, around, uh, the Bahamas, the underwater stuff, around Nassau. Very cool. Yeah, so they got out, and they, and, um, because they could only have, they only had an hour of air. So, they had from the last guy into the water and then the last guy getting out of the water. They had an hour. So Not really much time. No, they could only get about, you know, a few minutes of, of filming done. And, um, then they had, uh, to had the sun had to cooperate because they didn't have underwater lighting, <laughs> you know, so it was pretty crazy. And the, the director, I he said the first, when he heard the first day he went underwater to do the first scene underwater and the guys were kicking up all this dust. And he's like, oh, movie's over, you know, because they couldn't see anything. And, and one of the guys came up with a, one of the divers came up with a solution to lay these hemp blankets on the, on the, the sea floor so that the guys could walk on so they could work there for a little bit longer without kicking up as much dust. And then that <laughs> saved the movie because they were, they, they couldn't have filmed it. They, they, they couldn't see anything. And, uh, just the, um, the, uh, underwater, um, funeral took 18 days to shoot. Oh my God! And that wasn't a very long scene either. No, it wasn't. But you can imagine just the, just to um, sort of coordinate all that. Yeah, it took them that long to shoot that scene. Wow! But this was underwater filming a movie. This wasn't really done back then. So no, it wasn't. You know, I mean, you got to. I always think of that. I always take myself and put myself in that time frame. And then I look at the movie. I'm like, wow, very impressive. Very yeah, impressive. you're right. When you think about the, the era that they did this in, um, you know, this, this kind of, this kind of stuff wasn't happening. I mean, this was 1954. Yeah. That was a long time ago, long before George Lucas did his, uh, you know, galaxy far, far away. Yeah. So it is, it is very impressive and, uh, it's just, it's crazy. And what, you know, one thing they, uh, now by today's standards, this, this is really, minuscule but they had they only had a budget or they had a budget of five million dollars mm-hmm. which at the time was was just dynamic it was huge yeah the box office take was about eight million dollars on the first run which is comparatively speaking really good for a movie that that people you know was way out of uh what the norm was for most people i mean most people were used to seeing you know, dramas or, or things like uh, Gone with the Wind, you know, that, that type of thing. They sure weren't used to seeing a movie like this. It's, but, you know, that, that's Disney, Breaking New Ground. Yeah, it was one of the most expensive movies ever 
back then. Yeah. At the time. Um, uh, you know, in the same time they were making 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, uh, Walt Disney was getting Disneyland going. And so sort of funding this movie was sort of putting Disneyland in the balance. And if the movie was not successful, it probably could have ended Disney uh, Studios and there would never have been a Disneyland. Which would have really sucked. For you. Think about yeah. it. Nope. <laughs> so, I mean, you should be happy. You should be thrilled that this movie was I am. Success. Otherwise, my podcast would just be called Tales of the... <laughs> Tales of something that, that doesn't exist. That's right. There's something in Anaheim, but that should be there, but it's not there. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, it, it is, and Walt did, and they were going to do it, I guess, as an animated movie. That was Walt Disney's original idea. But one of his, um, an art director, an artist for, that worked for him named Harbor Goff. Oh, yeah, yeah. He, um, decided, he was, he loved the 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea book. He, it was like his favorite book. He loved Jules Verne. So he, oh, he sat down, and he wrote, he, he drew out a bunch of um, storyboards uh, as a live-action movie. And, you know, Disney saw it, and he, he won him over. He said, okay, we'll do it live-action. And he saw it as a way to kind of combine CinemaScope and Technicolor and make it like a real spectacle. And so he got, and, and Disney also had a huge love for Jules Verne stories. You know, it was meant to be for those two guys to get together. And it really is, when you watch it, it's a spectacle. It really is one of those movies that... You can see in the fifties people like just kind of being wide eyed watching it, you know. Just yeah. Oh, yeah. Every everything about it is like big, you know. And I even though it's sort of I don't know what you would call it, maybe anachronistic when they go to the island where the cannibals and all the cannibals come out and they got you know <laughs> what I mean. It's like sort of like well, I don't think that would be done nowadays, but it is a, such it's such a cool scene. It's so colorful and it immediately like takes me back to those old movies where the cannibals. Oh, yeah. But those were all Jamaicans, actually, because they <laughs> they filmed that on Jamaica, on um on uh, Negril Beach in Jamaica. That's because uh, they is... ran out of red stripe. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> hey, man, where's my red stripe? All right, beer. I like red stripe. So do I. <laughs> my um my my wife's great grandmother is from Jamaica, and um it's very strange to see a white woman with a Jamaican accent, but it does exist. <laughs> And, um, she, uh, she cooks Jamaican food and drinks Jamaican beer. So that's the first time I've ever had it, but I love it. I love the scene. They're putting those boats in the water and they're like throwing the spears. I'm like, what a cool, <laughs> it's just colorful. It's like, that was the thing about the fifties, you know, when they, they put so much color into some of these big movies, you know, just to like, because then TV was a coming around and it's like every time TV starts to become big, Movie theaters decide, or movie makers decide they have to do something really big and different to get people to come to movie theaters. Mm-hmm. You know, now we have 3D and all, and all, and 48 frames a second or whatever. And back then they had, look, Technicolor. Yeah. You know, so, and Cinemascope. And then Sensoround. And <laughs> I remember Sensoround, yeah. Hey, did you notice something about this movie? And, and it wasn't, not just this movie, but movies of this era. The credits, all of the credits are done at the very beginning and not at the end. Yeah. So when the movie ends, you just get the end and then that's it. I kind of like that. Yeah, I, I, I'm a big fan of credits in the beginning of movies. Um, it sets a nice tone, I think. It does. And the, and the opening music is really cool. It's like, it's, you, it's like immediately kind of tells you what, what you're in for. It's nautical. It's got a, like a mysterious uh, sound about it. It's um, it's really cool music, and I, I 
they don't do that so much anymore. No, they don't. If Star- you get a good theme song, and yeah, Star Trek would be Star a good Trek's, example. They they used to do it. They until um, Nemesis was the <laughs> first movie where they just didn't let the uh, theme do. They just kind of went right into the movie. Well, there's much. a reason. <laughs> and the same thing with with Star Trek 2009. They had a teaser, and then they played the theme, and then they went into the movie. They didn't even they didn't do opening credits at all. I like having the opening credits. I like getting myself ready for a movie. Oh, absolutely. You know, and, um, you know, like, say, like a James Bond movie without, like, that opening um, song. Oh, the bullet, yeah, and the bullseye and all that The bullseye and the song. I mean, you if you don't have that opening song, then that song is such a cool way to set the tone for the movie. But, I mean, that's, that's the, that's the, um, that's the formula there. But I think a lot of TV shit, like, I mentioned this on Ragtag Fusion podcast last week, that, I love when shows still do opening themes with the credits and too many shows just say like whatever. And then mm-hmm. here's the show, you know, like um, the only time you see it nowadays really is on um, like HBO shows or something or, or Showtime shows. Mm-hmm. And AMC, The Walking Dead. And AMC, Walking Dead. That is one of the most iconic, I think, uh, title uh, songs and, and openings for a series anymore. Yeah, and uh, also on AMC, um, Mad Men has a really mm-hmm. cool um, opening theme music that sets a nice tone. Breaking Bad doesn't have much of anything. It just goes, bow, <laughs> You know, I blame Lost for this. I'm gonna t- <laughs> you remember Lost just had the, the, you know, that eerie sound. That eerie sound and then the, the titles. I don't know. I'm, I'm a sucker for soundtrack music, film scores, TV scores, so. I don't know. I, I don't like to see it go away. But hey, listen, we gotta we gotta get more commercials in, man. So we gotta cut those theme songs down. That's right. You gotta make more money. It's what it's about. Unlike, you know, in in the nineteen fifties when a movie like this was made, there was no. You notice too, there there's no shameless product placements in Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. <laughs> you know, you didn't see you didn't see Ned playing a Fender guitar there <laughs> during his song, uh, or a Fender uh, turtle shell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love how it just goes together. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it just plops it together. Oh, it works great, and it sounds wonderful. Yeah, uh, you had a you had a pretty cool story about um, about Kirk Douglas from his autobiography. In in that in his in the book that he wrote, the Ragman Son. Um, at the beginning of the movie, where um, Ned comes up with um, with the with the girls on each arm because he's a pimp. <laughs> to this, daddy. And, he, and where that old um sea codger is telling the story you know about the uh, monster uh he he wrote it into the he wanted it written into the film um at the time of the that the movie was made he was sort of in the prime of his career and he he wanted to keep his reputation uh as a dashing ladies man and a macho actor because he was in like a, a movie where he played a boxer i think called champion Mm-hmm. And anyway, so he, yeah, he uh, he read the script and he was he was bummed out that Ned Land had no women whatsoever, had no rousing fight scenes other than the battle with the squid, and spent most of the movie talking instead of being in action. And uh, that opening scene is pretty cool. He comes strolling up, and that guy's telling him about the monster, and of course he gets into <laughs> gets into a fight. I just I just get a kick. I get a kick out of his character, and I, I know a lot of that is Kirk Douglas, and and a lot and the director. Um, said that Kirk Douglas was great to work with, but he wasn't easy to work with. <laughs> that he was very opinionated and argumentative, and sometimes they lose a day of shooting because Kirk didn't like the way this guy's lines were written or his lines were written. 
And of course, Kirk Douglas said, I thought I was perfectly wonderful to work with. You know, he didn't. <laughs> well, who's going to tell him, you know? Right. And, and, uh, I can sympathize with that. I feel like yeah. I'm the same way at work. I kind of am argumentative and I'm just trying to work. And like, like the director said, in the end, he knew that Kirk Douglas was just trying to make the best movie he could. And, and, and if doing that was about making his character better, then it, it really in the end, it was fine. But yeah, he wasn't belligerent he just was very like he's, you, he would never just take something on face value you know what i mean so it's just funny when i was i was watching the behind the scenes and then kirk douglas uh, i thought i was a delight <laughs> <laughs> yeah of course he did yeah yeah but i mean and then the um him singing also he he learned how to uh to play the guitar on this movie over a couple of days he just picked it up you know uh, and you know nothing big just pick picked up the guitar yeah and you you know that bit where he like throws it out in front of him and keeps playing you know yeah he kind of made that up and during it's called the song whale of a tail which is just a, it's a, actually it's it's a cool song and it, and, it, and it will get stuck in your head and i'm going to make sure to put a clip in of it right now <laughs> <laughs> Got a whale of a tail to tell you lads, a whale of a tail or two, about the flapping fish and the girls I've loved on nights like this with the moon above, a whale of a tail and it's all true, I swear by my tattoo. There was mermaid Minnie, met her down in Madagascar, she would kiss me, any time that I would ask her, then one evening her flame of love blew out. Blow me down and pick me up, she swapped me for a trout. Got a whale of a tail to tell you lads, a whale of a tail or two. Got the flapping fish and the girls I've loved on nights like this with the moon above. A whale of a tail and it's so true, I swear by my tattoo. There was Typhoon Tessie, met her on the coast of Java when we kissed I. Bubbled up like molten lava, then she gave me the scare of my young life. Blow me down and pick me up, she was the captain's wife. Got a whale of a tail to tell you both, a whale of a tail or two. By the flapping fish and the girls I've loved on nights like this with the moon above. A whale of a tail and it's all true, I swear by my tattoo. There was Harpoon Hannah. Had a face that made you shudder. Lips like fish hooks and a nose just like a rudder if i kissed her and held her tenderly, held her tenderly. there's no sea monster big enough to ever frighten me Got a whale of a tail to tell you, lad. The whale of a tail or two. About the flapping fish and the girls I've loved on nights like this with the moon above. Whale of a tail and it's all true, I swear by my tattoo. Ahoy! Ship boat discovered by. So that's a song. <laughs> nice song. I love that song. Yeah, and it and he and um, it was actually put out as a single. Or as a, as an, I don't know what they called it back then. I don't know if it was a single, but it was a record, an actual pro- professional record. And, um, Kirk Douglas was friends with Frank Sinatra and was trying to show off to him, you know. But of course, Frank Sinatra is the most prolific, uh, singer, crooner of the, of his era. So he's like, Hey, hey, listen, you take my record. I'll take your records. And, you know, 
But uh, <laughs> did you imagine uh, Frank Sinatra doing that? Whale of a tail. Whale of a tail. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, the, yeah. So you know, what I you know we were talking about uh, Captain Nemo earlier and how perfect uh, James Mason is in the role. Um, Gregory Peck auditioned for the role of Captain Nemo. Yeah, and that would have been just. I think he would have been just as good. I think so too, just in a different way. He, I don't think he would have been as intense as James Mason because James Mason had that uh, that intensity you know, about him. You know that uh, the burning eyes. I think Gregory Peck would have been more uh, maybe. Captain Ahab type. Well, he did play Captain Ahab, so that stands to reason. And he was really good in it. But when you look at Captain Ahab, he's just a much more of a bummer. You know, Captain. You know, Captain Ahab is just obsessed with revenge. Now, Captain Nemo has revenge on his mind, but not really active. I mean, he is, of course, killing these ships, but he's got more of a, I think, a reason behind it. You know, and he actually has more of a altruistic personality. Than Captain Nemo. Captain Nemo just wants to kill this stupid whale that bit his leg off, and you know, uh, Captain Nemo lost his his family. Right, and right. He's he's actually trying to make the world more peaceful by destroying weapons. So I mean, his motivations are a little bit more beneficial, I guess. Even not that not that they're perfect. Not that he's not killing tons of sailors and stuff, but you know, collateral it, damage. Yeah, it's yeah. Collateral well, damage, Professor. Plus Nemo, Nemo had a much cooler boat. <laughs> oh, way cooler. That, and I have that. Ooh, I pre-ordered. I pre-ordered a, a model uh, that they're, a model kit that's coming out this spring of the uh, Nautilus. Uh, I got it pre-ordered. I can't wait to get it because I'm going to put it together. It has. It's a cool model. And the stand. Guess what the stand is? <laughs> what? It's the, uh, the the squid tentacles. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Perfect. I want to see pictures of that. Oh, boy. yeah. It's got. It looks like a really, really cool model. I can't wait to get it. It's 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 not too. It's about sixty bucks. So it's not like overly expensive, but it's not cheap. Yeah. But you know, listen, I, I haven't done a model in a while. And, uh, <laughs> He's justifying now. Listen oh, to that. Oh. I'm a married man. I have to justify every purchase somehow. <laughs> but honey, it's really cool. Uh, cool. You know what else is cool? Feeding the family. That's what's cool. Oh, <laughs> we fed these kids for many years. Oh, that's, that's time they got a job, right? Exactly. Get out on your own. Yeah. Yeah. Time. You know what else is cool? What's that? Uh, ice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was that was, that was was bad joke. I'm sorry about that. Um, not vanilla ice. No, not vanilla. Well, he was cool for about 35 seconds. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and then, then, it, then not anymore. Uh, it's a little bit of trivia. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I thought this was really cool because when I was rewatching it, I pointed this out to my wife, Joyce, uh, who does the, uh, the Disneyland podcast with me. Um, the, um, the, the pipe organ that Captain Nemo plays in the movie is actually on display in Disneyland inside the Haunted Mansion. That's cool. And, uh, it's, it's in the, uh, the grand ballroom scene, you know, where the ghosts do all their dancing. But it is, it's so cool to see, a piece of cinematic history inside, you know, a place that we visit uh, as often as we possibly can. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, and now somebody needs to pay, uh, play um, Fugue in D minor on it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he wasn't, he didn't play any cheery songs on that damn thing. He was. 
No. <laughs> so, but you know, actually, when you think about it, it, it kind of gives you a little insight to his character. Yeah. Because that's that's what he's playing. Because he's he's such a he's such a tormented man because of of, of what happened. And he's got this 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 knowledge and this um, this skill to create these things that that could absolutely and positively change the course of human history and and make he could have single-handedly created the star trek universe right then and there but because of what happened to him you know mm-hmm. with the torturing of his wife and kid and the murder of them it twisted him so much that that he's taken his his skill and his knowledge and he's done it this way and it's twisting him up yeah you're right i mean when you watch it it would he 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 is a really interesting villain, and I think he, when you were saying he would fit in as a Star Trek villain because he's not like just uh, just evil. You know, he's not really evil at all. No. He's just angry, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that's not quite the same. Sort of, I guess maybe Nero, sort of like him, Nemo, Nero. I don't know. Yeah, so, I think so. You know, you think about it. Um, so I mean, he's he's definitely. Um, He's definitely a, a really, really, you know, interesting, interesting character. Most interesting character in the movie, uh, which is saying a lot. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, the, the interesting thing about the story of the movie is it's not the, um, when they, when they got the, uh, the book, they realized that there really wasn't an overarching story throughout the book. The book is more of like, say, like these vignettes that are loosely connected, mm-hmm. but there wasn't really an overarching you know, thrust in a theme. So they just, they had to come up with a story and, uh, and fit all these other episodes into it. You know, the going underwater on the Island of Crespo and things like that. And, uh, they decided to make it into a jailbreak story. So that's how the, this, the overarching story of them being captured, put on the boat, and Ned trying to escape. That's where that came from. So that there was a, an actual story moving everything else forward. So, Mm-hmm. I uh, yeah I didn't I I haven't ever read the book I know that that's bad but well I haven't either <laughs> yeah but I mean listen it's 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 pretty old and I've read a lot of books <laughs> yeah I know and we have yeah, a really either. cool movie to watch that's true if we got this awesome movie why bother reading the book especially if the book's not as good right <laughs> I mean it really I I don't think I would imagine something as cool as what was shown on screen. That's probably also horrible to say, but I think it's pretty true. Well, I think you're right. You're right. And one of the other cool things, uh, and probably the most iconic scenes from this movie is the giant squid scene. Oh, I mean, yeah. that is just absolutely when whenever you think of 20,000 leagues under the sea, that's what you think of. This this giant squid and um it's interesting because uh, the director had a bit of a problem because when when they were first doing that scene with the giant squid, uh, it, it looked fake. I mean, plain and simply looked fake because you can see the cams and the gears that operated the squid very easily. So Walt Disney, because, you know, Walt Disney is Walt Disney, uh, decided to visit the set one day and, and Fleischer told him about the problem. So Disney came up with the idea of having the squid battle take place during a fierce storm, you know, dark and stormy and all kinds of uh, interference with the with the waves and stuff like that. And they reshot it that way and it was they were able to hide all all of the uh the uh, operating equipment that way. And to this day, that that reshoot is considered by many to be the highlight of the film, like I said. 
Yeah. I mean, I think I caught a couple of wires here and there when I was watching it in HD on my TV, <laughs> of course, because, I mean, you know, I mean, I was looking. I'm not going to lie. But I think that the um, the storm and everything hit it hit it really well. And, yeah, they, they said it was a disaster. Like, they were just, like, totally shocked by yeah. how awful it was looking in that sun to sunset. Um, and there was, like, a just a, I think I had, like, a one guy per tentacle. <laughs> I think, and they they also had like these pneumatic tubes going into the tentacles to sort of give them the a little bit more motion, more of a natural motion too. Right. But yeah, that is a cool. That is definitely right. When you say iconic, I mean that's you're right. That's the first thing I think of when I think of that movie is uh, Kirk Douglas with a harpoon and the uh, tentacles. I mean, it really is the it is the highlight of the movie. Yeah, and, and, and he uh, was good with that harpoon, I'll tell yeah. you. Yeah, <laughs> he finally got to use it. He tried, too, and the, when he was on that other ship. And, the, <laughs> and then that, um, his uh, Nemo's base on Vulcania, if that's not like a James Bond villain lair. Oh, I know. And really, Nemo seems to be like maybe a prototype James Bond villain almost. You know, yeah. he's, you know, you know, where are we going, Nemo? You know. <laughs> Yeah, now is it my imagination, or I mean, think back to to when we first see Nemo's um, headquarters, whatever you want to call it. Um, it looked to me like one of the buildings had a giant satellite dish on top. Yeah, I saw that too. So what the heck was the satellite dish pointed at? Yeah, there's no satellites <laughs> in the yeah. 1800s. <laughs> no, maybe it was just receiving. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It was just fun home. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I actually, yeah, you know what? And I didn't even think of that when I was looking. I'm like, I think that's a satellite dish. And I was like, oh, well, sure. It was the 50s. You know, that was how you knew things were futuristic. But then I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> and is this sort of the beginning? Do you think like steampunk in a movie? I mean, the Nautilus is very, very steampunk, don't you think? Like, the, oh yeah, the design of the suits and the nautilus itself i love i love the um the set decoration mm -hmm. inside of like the, the you know the, the viewing room um and all the quarters i mean there's like tons of velvet and it's just a there's a lot of lush it's just a really a pretty scenery pretty scene pretty uh sets anyway oh so absolutely the, yeah the, and who who actually who was it that designed the interior um of the nautilus uh it was Roland Hill. Yeah, Roland Hill. Yeah. Yeah. Who also designed Disneyland Sleeping Beauty Castle. <laughs> well, that would be why I love it so much. You know, what's funny is uh, I don't know if you've anybody has ever seen them, and I mean that quite sincerely. Anybody has really ever seen the movie League of Extraordinary Gentlemen? I've seen it. Yeah, um, but the Nautilus in that movie, I it was huge and it was so ornate inside. But to me, I, I thought that paled in comparison to this Nautilus. Yeah, I mean, it was had like the it was like a that Nautilus was sort of like a knife in in, in the ocean. You know, it had like the big blade in the front and everything. I mean, it was it was pretty cool. But yeah, and I don't know what was going on with Captain Nemo in that movie either. It was it was, <laughs> it was weird. Yeah, that that was, movie was weird. <laughs> it was it was it was an attempt at something odd, and uh, I won't. Uh, it's a good movie to uh, to watch if there's nothing else on, and you've already gone through six of your twelve beers, and <laughs> you know I think they talk Sean. I think that's the movie that Sean Connery decided afterwards to quit uh, from acting. I'm not. I'm not. I actually think that's pretty accurate. <laughs> it doesn't surprise me. 
I'm done with this crap. It's <laughs> <laughs> pretty good. I was actually just watching Celebrity Jeopardy <laughs> with a couple of friends of mine uh, this evening, uh, the uh, SNL ones, and I've been doing Sean Connery all night long. The day is mine. <laughs> He's one of my favorite actors. He's a yeah. fellow Scott. And I watched Goldfinger today, so I really am in a Sean Connery kind of mood. Wow. Could you imagine Sean Connery as Captain Nemo? <laughs> oh, sure. But, I mean, he's sort of one note, though, isn't he? Yes, very much so. But that's fine. That's what we that's what we want out of Sean Connery. We don't, we don't expect Harrison Ford or Sean Connery to wow us. We just no. want them to be cool. That's right. And yes. that they are. Yes, and they did it together <laughs> in Indiana Jones. You know, they were going to do um, some animated fish, too, in the movie. Like um, some really freaky, like some of those self-illuminating fish. And they spent a lot of time, like, with the Disney animators doing them, and they didn't um, end up using hardly any of it, unfortunately. Yeah. But uh, I don't know how that would have worked. It, w- it would have been more like a, um, you know, Incredible Mr. Limpid look, I think. Yeah. They did. They, I think they used one shot where you see uh, when uh, Professor Aranax is looking out of the viewing port and fish kind of go by. Uh-huh. That was like they're rotoscoped and they were painted on. You can see they were kind of animated. But that's about oh, yeah. the only that's the only shot. But then they did a cool thing too of doing like a, sort of like almost like a matte painting, but not really. They the artist would would sit on the beach where they were gonna insert like say like a like an old a ship or something, and he would paint on glass the ship in pers- like in perfect perspective with where they were going to put the camera, and then they would put the camera on that glass and shoot through it so that the actual painting was right there in frame. Awesome. Yeah, and I was—I mean, that was—that's on the um, the bonus features D- on the DVD that I got, and um, that—that's a pretty cool behind-the-scenes. It's about an hour and a half, and they have archival footage. Um, Pretty—that's some pretty cool stuff. And you know, they had to be inventive back then. They just had to be, you know. And 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 they, there was some real artisans that really came up with with ways to make things happen. And and. Just like an, the example of them filming underwater, they had to film underwater. The whole, whole bunches of the movie are filmed underwater. Yeah. And well, that's the thing about about Walt Disney. I mean, Walt Disney, the man, and and his company, is they never they never sat back and said, "Well, it can't be done." They, if they would encounter a problem, they would build whatever they need to make it work. Absolutely. I mean. I don't know. I just I was I was more I was more impressed than anything when I watched it of just the sets, and I think that was obviously the intention back then. They wanted to make a big movie. They wanted to make a big splash, and and they did, and that sort of got their their juices going for the more of the live action stuff that they ended up doing later on. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you a question now. In in the because uh, I I didn't I don't have the the extended version or the uh, the behind the scenes stuff. Mm-hmm. In in the movie, we see the power source. For the Nautilus. Now, yeah. I mean, it's obviously something pretty, pretty powerful. D- does the behind-the-scenes stuff talk about what this power source was and why Nemo's Island blew up like it did? No, I don't think so. I didn't see that come up, but I'm imagining that it's 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 obviously meant to be nuclear stuff. Right. You know, it's obviously meant to be in that vein. I mean, when he puts the – he goes into that trippy, you know, engine room thing, mm-hmm. power source, and he puts like the – the visor down yeah. to look into the furnace or whatever. And they pick, you know, and it's like blinding light. And when the, yeah, when the, when Volcania explodes, it's a big mushroom cloud. So, I mean, you know, it's clearly meant to, to at least make you think about 
the atomic bomb yeah, or, or cool. nuclear power. Uh, and it, because I guess nuclear power was only discovered in the forties, obviously. So, you know, <laughs> it was, it was pretty much in everybody's mind in the fifties. You can't deny that. I mean, from what I understand, I didn't exist back then. <laughs> from everything that I watched on TV, everybody was all bummed out about nuclear bombs. Yeah, <laughs> don't know why. <laughs> Something about glowing in the dark for a Yeah, period. I don't know. It, it's it's a cool. What do you th- you know? What uh, one of my the, the things about the uh, movie that I get a kick out of is um that seal. That they oh, got. I love the seal. And, and it's a weird if you think about it. Like Nemo is sort of this kind of like serious guy, but he's got like a seal wandering <laughs> around the ship and clapping, and he's like very kind of tender with it. In the one scene you see where he's like feeding it and. And Ned gets drunk with it and mm-hmm. sings a song to him. But uh, I guess on on set the seal was temperamental, you know, like they'd get set up for a <laughs> a shot, and then the seal would just kind of in the middle just go tromping off, flapping its you know flippers <laughs> and just go wandering around the set, knocking stuff over, and it became problematic. But you know, you know, this movie had like ten things you don't do. Uh, working on the water, working underwater, <laughs> working with animals, no working children. Working with Kirk Douglas. <laughs> working with Kirk Douglas because he's a pain in the butt. And I guess um, Paul Lucas, who played Aranax, I guess he also was kind of difficult to work with. Apparently, he was he got very angry a lot of the time. It was threatening lawsuits and this and that at people. But I guess what the director. Um, uh, Richard Fleischer says is that apparently he was just getting older and his memory was going and he was having trouble remembering his lines and I guess his anger was coming out in other in, in the wrong kind of way. But um, and, and a cool thing about the director now you may you his name is Richard Fleischer. Mm-hmm. Now you may know the name Max Fleischer. Oh yeah, that's his father. Really, and of, and of course Max Fleischer was a rival of Walt Disney. Ah, a big time rival. So Walt Disney offers. Richard Fleischer the gig to direct 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And he had to, he was like very nervous about, you know, talking to his father. And his father said, go and do it and tell, tell him that he has a great t- taste in directors. You know, he did, um, Betty Boop. Mm-hmm. And he did a really awesome, some awesome Superman cartoons. If you've ever seen the Max Fleischer Supermans, if you haven't seen them, they're, they're just amazing. Yes, they are. They're beautiful. They're beautiful to look at. Um, and me being a huge Superman fan, I, I've watched those often. <laughs> but um, I thought that was pretty interesting. That that's like say if like Bill Gates' son worked for Steve Jobs or something. You know, it would be weird. Yeah, It'd be weird if Bill Gates had a son. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, isn't he married? I don't know. I don't know yeah, he's that. married, but I don't know if they have any kids. I, I don't even want to think of that. <laughs> <laughs> oh come on! Don't make yeah. don't don't bust on Bill Gates. No. <laughs> Never. So actually, there was a there was a sequel to Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. Believe it or not, is there always are mm. in these things called Mysterious Island. Oh, and um, Nemo reappeared in okay. that because in the original book, uh, we don't know if Nemo died or not. His fate was kind of left unknown. Right, but in, in the movie, he clearly went down with the ship. That's right. Yeah. But we didn't actually. See, well, no, we did see him. No, his eyes were open at the end. Remember? So. Yeah, but he was shot in the back. <laughs> I mean, uh, listen, and there's blood and everything. Yeah, true. It's not well, like he's he's an X Men. You know, he's not like he's Wolverine and can heal himself. <laughs> no, um, you know the um, 
think speaking of that last scene and a lot of the um the shots where they were looking through windows they would do that with rear projection mm-hmm. so like you know like the scene where where uh, Nemo and them go up to the the bridge or the wherever the wheel is and they'd open the window to look at you know Ned and the professor and um conceal on the on the tail of the ship as they sink mm-hmm. and they left left them out back that was you know it was just a pretty cool way for them to actually get it all in the in the frame and it actually looked pretty for the most part looked pretty cool yeah uh, i thought so yeah they did have and um all of that sort of the when they when you show close-ups of the actors in the suits the uh the, when they filmed that back in the um studio they had to really match the look of the um, underwater stuff in the Bahamas, which was sort of difficult to do, but they did do it as well as they could. Um, but but <laughs> Kirk, Kirk Douglas, he just is so um, just he gesticulates like crazy. You know what I mean? His face is going like nuts. You know, in oh. every scene, and it's like you know he's always and, he, and like when he's punching people, he does that wide swing. You know, or it's like he's just a. Very he's, Buster Keaton esque. Yeah, and he's got like that crazy chin too, you know. <laughs> I watch this. You know, so well, that's why like, I was I I was laughing in in the scene where where he was telling uh, Concealed to go ahead and and, and take a pop at him. You mm-hmm. know, and he stuck his chin out and said, "Go ahead, you can't miss it." And went, no kidding. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. That 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 scene though, where he chucks those um, bottles out the top. Oh, of Oh yeah. He's just like nonchalant, you know. And that is the fastest anybody's ever gotten an answer to a message in a bottle. No kidding. I mean, wasn't aren't we finding like messages in a bottle from like ninety years ago or something? <laughs> and I mean, not only that, like the whole navy shows up. Well, that's like the internet of messages in a bottle. No it's like, kidding. It's like e message in a bottle. <laughs> <laughs> they must be using Google. <laughs> Luckily, they weren't using Apple Maps. But you know, honestly. I looked at that scene and um, I kind of thought something. I mean, I know that that the uh, that the assumption was that that the uh, that the warships were responding to the messages in the bottle. Mm-hmm. But I was thinking, well, maybe it wasn't the warships. Maybe the uh, they just they happened to be close. Uh, you know, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but I, th- I don't. I, yeah, I think that the the implication is that yeah, he. Uh... Put those. He told them. Remember, he got the charts to find yeah, out where Volcano right. yeah. were. And, you know that scene where. <laughs> I mean, anytime him and and Peter Laurie are doing a scene together, it really is funny. It's fun to watch. It is. You know, and they're they're creeping around trying to get the charts. And, oh, Ned, they're they're coming. <laughs> you know, I just I, I get a kick out of the two of them, and 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 the professor really, um, sort of. You know, in the middle of the movie, sort of takes a back seat to the two of their two of them. Oh, he does, yeah. You know, because in the beginning, it's like his interest in Nemo that sort of brings them aboard. And I love my one of my favorite scenes is, is in the beginning where they're having dinner, and it's all the you know they're like, oh, this is good, good stuff, and it's all that weird like, you know, what was it like milk from a sperm whale? Or whatever. <laughs> that's that that's a statement that you don't want to hear. Milk from a sperm whale. You yeah. Know? It, it, Keep going. Okay. <laughs> hey, you do right well for yourself, mate. You may call me Captain Nemo. I'd like to express our gratitude, Captain. We are grateful to be alive. I want none of your gratitude. You're all on the strictest probation. And I'd advise you not to attempt escape. You understand your position? Well, I don't know, Captain. 
Prisoner has a right to escape, hasn't he? That is correct, sir. And a guest don't need to. So I guess that makes us a little bit of both, huh? <laughs> Consider that a fortunate compromise, then, Mr. Land. I tolerate no guests aboard the Nautilus, and you already know the fate of prisoners. Food is delicious, isn't it, Professor? Oh, very good. Never tasted better. There's a fork on your left, Mr. Land, or aren't you accustomed to utensils? I'm indifferent to him. May I ask how you are able to set such a table as this, Captain? These dishes come entirely from my ocean kitchen. There is nothing here of the earth. How remarkable. This tastes like veal. The flavor deceives you. That is filet of sea snake. Huh? I suppose this is lamb, then. That is brisket of blowfish with sea squirt dressing, basted in barnacles. It's very good. In fact, it's better than lamb. Yes, my cook excels in preparing these various products. Not finished, are you? Well, uh, just the main course. Uh, pass the cream, Mayor. Huh? The cream is, of course, milk from the giant sperm whale. And those delicious fruits you're eating are actually preserves made from sea cucumbers. Well, I'd never have guessed it. <clears throat> they are excellent. Eat your pudding, Mr. Land. I ain't sure it's pudding. What is it? It's my own recipe. Sauté of unborn octopus. <laughs> Nothing here is fit to eat. Yeah, I mean, it all didn't sound too bad. I, you know, listen, I'd eat it. What the heck? I mean, what else am I gonna eat? But I, I, I love, I love that scene. I just, I just wrote. I, I took so many notes down. Holy mackerel! <laughs> when I was watching this movie, um, Rorapente. I mean, that is where they got the name, and it actually is a real. I believe it's a real place. Rora Panty, I think, or something close to that. But it actually is a real, real place, and that's clearly where they got the, the name for the uh, the Klingon prison in uh, Undiscovered Country. And in the this movie, they call it the White Man's uh, Graveyard, and in the movie, it's the Alien's Graveyard. Right. Yeah, but that's a that's it's pretty cool. It's it's the whole movie. I mean, I just I, I said I gotta stop writing notes down because <laughs> I just watched the movie, but I was just like. And Kirk Douglas was in crazy shape too. Holy cow! Oh, I know. And he, he kept because he let you know because that shirt came off more than Shatner, <laughs> more than Brian Dunn. More than no, well, nobody's shirt oh. comes off more than Brian Dunn. I don't know. Maybe he's got he's got a baby now. Maybe. Uh, oh yeah, that's right. So we got to take a moment right now to say congratulations to Brian and Jamie on their uh, on their new baby. Yeah. It's pretty cool. I, I haven't had a newborn for, well, four years now. My daughter's mm. almost four. And though those days are so crazy um, because you're so, everything is about the baby, the baby, the baby. Yeah. And you don't, you, you don't go anywhere. You, you don't do anything but care for the child and sleep and eat. You know what I mean? And that's really, I remember, you know, when our, when the kids were born, that was just a great time to get caught up on TV shows and movies because, <laughs> you know, you can't really do much of anything else. And, you know, my, you know, my wife particularly. And it was, it's, it's a really, it's a really awesome time. I'm, I'm happy for him. And, uh, that kid is going to be like in shape. Holy cow. Oh, I no mean, kidding. When's this, I, I, I asked him when, it, when, when the kid's first triathlon was. I mean, I would imagine I'd give him about a year to get ready. But... <laughs> After that, no, if you're not ready, it's too bad. That's right. But, I mean, and he's a cute little, uh, cute little kid. Cute he little, is. Cute and little peanut. He is, and thankfully doesn't take after Brian. <laughs> yeah. That's what I was going to say. It's a good thing he 
<laughs> because we don't we don't need another one of those running around. No, Make but this isn't one it, wear a shirt? Isn't it cool though when you can look at, at, at a kid and go, "Future geek, isn't it awesome?" It is, and and he really is a very cute baby. So congratulations, guys! Way to go! I know that that uh, that you guys have been looking forward to it, so it's awesome, so awesome, and it makes me miss having a newborn almost, but not quite. Trust me, because. <laughs> As much as cute as babies are, there's nothing more that that will set my teeth on edge than a newborn crying. Holy cow! <laughs> Brings you right back to like two in the morning. <laughs> but that's great. Anyway, that's our tribute to the the Dunn child. That's right. <laughs> and he deserves one. And he does. Member of the family. Um, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. So we were talking about the cannibal scene earlier, which is, I think is a funny scene. It's really, <laughs> I love it. I mean, Peter Laurie is all sweaty. <laughs> he looks so uncomfortable with his pants up around his chest. And <laughs> of course, Kirk Douglas, he's just like in shape McGee, ready to go running off into the woods. And I mean, let's face it. Captain Nemo did warn them. There's cannibals out there. And, he did. You know, listen, he wasn't lying. <laughs> <laughs> he may, he, you know, I mean, let's give Captain Nemo some credit. I mean, he knew that Ned was trying to escape, but he kind of, you know, was trying to give give him some benefit of the doubt. But of course, listen, he's Kirk Douglas. Yeah. But uh, so they had this little skiff that that sort of, which is a really cool. I hope the model I, I'm gonna get comes with it. I'm sure it does. <laughs> but it's a little skiff. It's and it attaches to the um to the back of the ship, and it's like a little slot for it. You know they tie it on, and then they, and then it's it was um it was made of wood. It was painted. They painted it to look like it was metal and had rivets and everything. But it, they had to weight it down so that it would look like it was sort of heavy in the water. And they so when they towed it over to the cannibals' island, the crew took out the sandbags to make their job easier. But they forgot to put them back in. <laughs> and so there's the scene when you know Kirkus Ned is running away from the cannibals and um kirk uh they get back to the uh, the boat and he expected it to be um the boat to be lower in the water and he didn't <laughs> so when he gets in to start rowing you know he didn't the, the oars weren't low to the water because he was expecting the boat to be like i don't know six inches maybe eight <laughs> inches lower so he hits air to and he starts to row and he falls down on his back um and the director thought it was was really funny so they left it in the film, you know, you can see it when he his, his legs go up in the air, and it really is funny. And when I was watching it, I was like, I wonder if that was uh, intentional, and it was not. It was an accident, one of those things that just get left in the movie just because they're really charming and funny. I thought it was funny. Yeah, it it definitely it it, it added to the uh, to the charm of of their relationship and yeah. of their antics. I thought I thought it was perfect. You know, it was, there was a lot of just the, the, the all the, the every little the dull details in this movie. I think are the things that really sell it. And I know that James Mason was very appreciative of having details that he could kind of use for his character, like in the set design, the props. There was like a little scene where he's like lighting uh, a cigar out of a conch shell. Right, you know? I mean, <laughs> makes no sense, but it's cool. Um, things like when they're, the, the, the people are, uh, they're going out to the island of Crespo to go get all their food. Um, and they have quadrants. They don't have tridents. <laughs> they have quadrants. <laughs> yeah, I noticed that. I thought those were the, those, uh, those were pretty cool, um, tridents, but I mean, obviously not tridents, no, but, uh, they had four. 
And they have one more. <laughs> those lobsters that you see them um, gathering, those are spiny lobsters, and, and we do get those down in the Keys when we go down there during lobster season. And let me tell you something. They are delicious. Whoa. They are awesome. They are really, really good. And, you know, you people who are, who are lobster snobs might say, well, Maine lobsters, these are not Maine lobsters. No, they're not Maine, but they're really, really good. When I was watching that scene, I was like, oh, I could go for some lobster. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, there's nothing better than anything fresh that you get out of the sea the same day you cook it, the same day you catch it. It's just worlds of difference. But I digress. <laughs> you digress about digesting. I do, because I, I like to eat. <laughs> Who doesn't, right? Yeah, true. Yeah, that's a... It's a, it's just a, it's a cool movie. It's, it's a, it's a real magical movie, I think. Um, and if you, and if you, and I, sh and I, I, my son, my younger son saw it, was watching some of it. He's five and a half around that age. And to him, he's not a snob. So he's just seeing this cool movie with the boat and a submarine and a, and a, and a squid, you know? So, I mean, I think it's a really cool, and I, the Disney movies back that in this, in this time frame. 50s through 60s. They're just some of the best movies for kids to watch, I think. I, I grew up on them, so maybe I'm a little biased, but I mean, I'm, I'm a Disney fan, and I know you are. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you something right now that you're gonna probably, you'll, you'll never talk to me again, but, um, I have not been to Disney World since I was nine years old, and I live only, what, two hours away. Oh, my gosh. Right. Now, th there's always been a reason. You know what I mean? Like, not to go. And I mean, I've even been to Universal, which is like right next door. <laughs> but Disney is very expensive. I'm going to say that right now. And oh, I have, and actually, that was going to be our vacation this year. We're going to take the kids to Disney. Um, especially since my younger kids do love Disney so much. Disney Junior is like their favorite channel. Holy cow. But um, I, I have great memories of going to Disney World as a kid. Um, and I'm, we're going. Definitely. I'm going to go again. I want my kids to go to Disney World. And I want the, especially the younger kids, because I think they're just going to get a great kick out of it. But I love the 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea ride. I love the Haunted Mansion ride. I have great memories of going to Disney World. I the, the, the light parade at night, the fireworks over the castle. I mean, the, the, those are great memories. And the Disney, uh, and there's a lot of people in the world that kind of bash Disney. Mm -hmm. You know, because, oh, Disney just cares about making money. Yeah, imagine that. A company caring about <laughs> making money. Isn't that strange? Of course they do. And, and I know there's probably a lot of people when Disney bought Star Wars who may be thinking, oh, they're gonna, they're, listen, they're, most people are, I think, are happy because Disney wants to make, if Disney wants to make money, that means that they're not gonna put out garbage. Exactly. Good point. And I'm looking forward to it. But I, 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 I like Disney. I like Disney for my kids. I don't, I, I don't care that they're a big company. I think that their their product is quality, and I think that has a lot to do with the fact that it started off as a fa basically what it's a family company, right? I mean, Roy right. Disney and Walt Disney, and even now in his and Walt Disney's son. Uh, I mean, it, it's and and it all came from Walt Disney. And he had this really great imagination and this really this personality, like where he when he watched it behind the scenes, he threw. They say he just threw himself into anything he was doing. Mm -hmm. So, like, when they were making, just doing the things, like, they were doing the script, like, they would actually start to hide from Walt Disney, because when they're trying to write the script, he would always come in and say, hey, I got an idea for this, I got an idea for that, how about this dialogue, and he would come in almost every day and just give them more and more stuff, because he was, he was just obsessed with making, like, the, the best, the best thing he could. So, I mean, it owes a lot to the guy's vision. He was 
he was a visionary filmmaker. Oh yeah. You know, and we have only so many of those, um, people, you know, Walt Disney, George Lucas, people like Stanley Kubrick that are just visionaries, a little bit ahead of their time, maybe a little bit weird, <laughs> but they end up making stuff that lasts a really, really long time. And, uh, like this, like this movie, which I think is still watchable, uh-huh. uh, e- extremely. And I mean, I can be cynical and I'm, I'm telling you that I didn't get any of that. And it's been 20, almost 20 years since I watched this movie. I'm, I'm 30. Holy cow. Oh God. I'm <laughs> 30. Sorry. Yeah. I don't want to hear it. It's been 30 years since I've left high school. So shut up. All right. Well, I'm 20, 21. <laughs> so, but I mean, so, yeah. so it's been 30 years since I watched this movie and I did buy it on DVD about a year ago. Funny thing. And it was, it was in a cheapo bin, like seven, eight bucks. Oh remember. yeah. So like I picked it up. I was like, now this, this is, I remember this being great. And I bought it and I just sort of put it on the shelf and then forgot about it. And then I kind of came to you. I was like, Hey, let's do this. And you're like, yeah. And I was like, now I have a reason to watch the movie. And, um, that's sort of what it takes for me to <laughs> go through, <laughs> go through my backlog. Um, yeah, not a problem. I'm glad to, to, to do this. I mean, I, this is like you, this was, uh, one of my favorite movies growing up as a kid. I mean, uh, I remember watching it for the first time with my father and that, that's a great memory I have with him. And, and uh, even though it may, it, it you know, looking at it through uh, tainted 3D uh, uh, special effects eyes now, it it's it seems a little bit dated. It still holds up for me, you know, not just effects wise, but story wise. It's 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 got a great overall story. Yeah, it really does. It's and it's 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 uh, it's it's got um, all kinds of interesting ideas. The story is in itself, the, the main story in itself is fairly simple. Like I said, a prison escape sort of movie. Mm-hmm. But there's all these interest, these are interesting episodes that happen to them. The cannibals going underwater looking for uh, the treasure that they find in the food and, and all these other stories. But uh, the story is simple, but there's also these really interesting ideas like Nemo has about, like you were saying, about the, he, he could have brought about the Star Trek future with his with his mind and his, 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 his creations. And I mean, for the fifties to kind of bring up some of these, uh, sort of moral ideas about humanity, I think that for a kid's movie, mm-hmm. it's pretty cool. Pretty, uh, pretty smart writing there. Well, see, that's the thing. That's the thing about Disney movies, even today, most Disney movies that, that really appeal to me is that they, they teach you a fundamental lesson about life with, without being preachy. And they do it in a way that is spectacular. And you don't even realize that you're learning something. Yeah. I mean, and that sort of was always the idea behind Star Trek, too. Mm-hmm. You know, in the 60s, particularly when, when, when uh, the censors the, uh, would, would not let you do this or that or network people. But if you do it under the guise of science fiction, well, then a white person and a black person can kiss because aliens <laughs> are making them do it. You know that's, what I mean? That's right. I mean, and that's, 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 the, that's, the, that's the times change. And, and I think that... Um, Things like science fiction help people's attitudes change sometimes. I think that there's probably a lot of people who have watched Star mm-hmm. Trek who maybe had some racism or maybe had some other uh, what we would consider to be unattractive qualities in their personality. Maybe they've rethought them. I think that that's absolutely possible and true. And I, I and I think that that's one of the reasons mm-hmm. why. And I, I mean, it gets beaten to death whenever you watch anything about Star Trek or sci-fi. It's like people who watch sci-fi hope for a better world. Well, that's the truth, though, isn't it? 
like when you watch uh, Star Trek or you watch, it you want to be like, I want to live and I want to be in the Federation. You know, I want to be in a holodeck. I want to be able to go on a ship and go see uh, uh, something else. I mean, that's, that's an end to know that maybe we're not being so crappy to, to each other. Right. I mean, isn't, you know what I mean? I mean, we're still being crappy to each <laughs> other. That hasn't changed. That, that That's for, that's for damn sure. So anyway, that's my, that's as preachy as I get about sci-fi, but I do, I, I think that there's no doubt that <laughs> things like this, Jules Verne, way ahead of his time, no doubt about it, one of the greatest imaginations ever, and uh, and uh, I love it. I love sci-fi. I love Disney. <laughs> <laughs> if you can't tell, it's getting very late at my time, and I'm starting to ramble. But anyway, I think I think we're gonna wrap it up. I think that we we hit almost everything about this movie that I can think of. It was. Really fun movie. If you haven't seen it, mm-hmm. uh, and you listen to this, way to go. But um, <laughs> but if you haven't seen it, um, it's available. It's not expensive. It's it's a, it's it's one of the cheaper DVDs out there, and it's it's a really you're, you're going to get your money's worth out of it. And if you're into if you're into film history, you should watch it. If you're into special effects, you should watch it. If you just want to see a fun movie on a boat, you should watch. It. It's a it's an excellent movie. Give it a try. Give it a watch. You'll love it. Uh, gets my stamp. <laughs> Mine too. Two thumbs up. <laughs> Two tentacles up. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> not until you buy me dinner. <laughs> and with that note, I guess we're off to dinner. So, um, <laughs> all right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, this has been the Trex and Sci-Fi Podcast with Chris and Al. Say goodbye, Al. Okay. Peace out. See you later. There is hope for the future. And when the world is ready for a new and better life, all this will someday be.